Let's see, what else uh, can I do here? I'm starting to feel like Don. Oh, you know what? Oh, you know what else? I don't know. I've been gone for a week. I don't know how this works. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how man is not in control of his destiny and that, you know, as much as we try, we try to control it. And yet time is something we cannot control, but it is something that God has in control, and He uses every event under the sun for His own purposes and for His reasons. And uh, somebody took me to heart on what the Bible had to say, and they just took their watch off and just threw it down on the ground. Um, So if this is your watch, uh, you've probably noticed that you haven't had it on, but then maybe you haven't because you know you don't have any control over time at all anyway. So if it's not your watch, then we'll keep it. Is it anybody's watch? Is it your watch? Is it? Oh, your friend's watch. And it's probably your friend's Bible, too. I know, I know. I know. Oh, no, this is for a friend. There we go. Okay. You know, there are a lot of frustrations in life, and you probably recognize there are a lot of tragedies as well, and uh, many grave misfortunes. One of those would be if the Rams happened to lose to the Giants today. That would be, that would be one of them. But uh, on a maybe somewhat more serious note, but it just depends on where you're on the side of the spectrum, but on a more serious note, I'm reminded of all the tragedies that have taken place over the last several weeks, and I thought maybe I'd just kind of remind you of some of those that you're probably familiar with. But a couple of weeks ago, um, we read and heard about the tragic life and death of five-time New York Yankee manager Billy Martin. He had a life that was just filled with turmoil and tragedy, and it ended up, he ended up exactly the way he lived. And as you go through this and you hear of one tragedy after another, you're reminded of, you know, and I continually am reminded of the 12-year-old girl up in the city of Orange at the Orange Mall who was shot to death. And you can, you know, and you go back and you see all the tragedies that are going on through life. And the most recent one was a man whose name is Charles Stewart, 29-year-old Bostonian who leaped 300 feet to his death after it was discovered that he was responsible for the murder of his wife, and her death subsequently led to the death of their unborn child. And you've probably heard that this past week on the news. And then as I was going through the paper, I read a story about a nine-year-old girl who in the city of Los Angeles, after going through a, a, a drug rally at her high school and talking about the dangers of drug abuse, etc., went home and uh, they were encouraging him to stand up and speak out when they saw this taking place. And went home, and as she was in her house, she, she continually saw her mother hide something in her, in her uh, bedroom closet and went in and saw in her mother's shoes 14 gram-sized packets of cocaine. So she took one of the packets to school because she didn't know what it was, and she showed the principal, and they identified it as, co- as cocaine, and they turned the mother over to the Drug Narcotics Bureau, and uh, it led to her subsequent arrest for drug trafficking charges. You know, when you hear about things like this that are going on all around us and you realize that, you know, life is filled with tragedy and, you know, we hear about drunken driving accidents and we hear about uh, family conflicts and divorce and abuse and, um, you know, and then, and then I read in a paper a couple of weeks ago about the family of four on, this, on the 10 freeway that ran into the back of the tractor trailer that overturned and they were killed on impact when the truck blew up. You know, and you, and you hear about things like this, and you read about the scandal that's taken place with Lincoln Savings and Loan and people that have lost a lifetime savings, and it's pretty obvious that life is filled with tragedy, that life is filled with grave misfortunes, and uh, what we're going to be looking at this morning as we continue in our study throughout Ecclesiastes, if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, but we're going to be taking a look at the tragedies of life. 
Solomon's going to address in this particular section of Scripture the tragedies that he observes in the life around him. I remember a business class that I took one time. It was, I believe it was an economics class. And in the class, they were trying to define or actually tell the difference between what a recession is and what a depression is. And a typical business class in any university, they go round and round and round for hours, you know, trying to come up with the ultimate truth. And everyone's got an opinion of what they think or what the difference would be. And the one thing that, I was, that, that stood out, the one definition above everything else that stood out, was that the difference between a re- recession and a depression, and this was the astute observation of the group. A recession is when others lose their job. And a depression is when you lose your job. That was it in a nutshell. And it's kind of like that's the way tragedy is. Because one of us may consider something in our life to be a tragedy and others do not. And it reminds me of the story that I heard about the pastor who loved golfing. This guy loved golfing. And uh, he usually got out two or three times a week whenever it was possible to do it. And at one particular uh, stint of time, he had three weeks that went by, and he never could get out to golf. He had just too many things going on. He was away on speaking engagements. Then he had a funeral that he did, and he had some weddings that he did. And all this was happening within a three-week period of time, and he couldn't get out to play any golf. And the guy was just about going crazy. So finally, his temptation or his passion for golf got the best of him, and he was scheduled to preach on a Sunday, and he called, and he said, Hey, I'm sick. I can't preach. He loaded his golf clubs in his car, and he drove 50 miles away because he didn't want anybody around the neighborhood see him out golfing on Sunday. So he was out there and he's golfing away, just enjoying the day, and it was a wonderful day. And uh, he was doing okay, no better, no worse than usual. And uh, one of the angels ran to God and said, hey, if they run or flew, I don't know, it just depends on how he got there, but he got there nonetheless. And he said, hey, look, there's, your, there's a pastor playing golf on Sunday, and, I, and that, that's okay, but the problem is he lied about it, and he, he put his car, and he drove away, and he's trying to make it, and what, what are you going to do about it? And his score's not that bad after all. And just as he said that, a gust of wind blew, and the guy was on a, the pastor was on a par three hole, and he hit the ball up in the air, and it got caught in the wind, and it started blowing all over the place. And next thing you know, it drops on the green, and it rolls right into the hole. Hole in one. The angel's stunned. He goes, I can't believe that you would allow him to have a hole in one. God says, you realize that's the first hole in one that he's ever made in his life. The angel goes, well, why in the world would you reward him in such a way? He goes, hey, I didn't reward him. Think about it. It's their first hole-in-one in 35 years of golf, and he can't tell anybody. <laughs> the tragedies of life, okay? So if you're, if you're ready for the tragedies, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes 4. Solomon writes... Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One handful of rest is better than two fistful of labor and striving after the wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. 
Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Let's ask God just to bless our time. Our Father, as we look around us, it's pretty obvious that this life is filled with tragedy and some grave misfortunes. All the things that we've already discussed and that we see apparent in the, life, in the lives of people around us make us stop to consider what life is all about. God, help us to see the answer to these tragedies. Help us to see what you would have us learn from this particular passage. And we just thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go through this, Solomon takes a look at some of the tragedies in life. And like I said, for some of us, what you consider a tragedy, another person may not. But there are three tragedies in life that are common to every one of us. And those three common tragedies of life are what he defines in the first couple of verses, if you take a look at that, is a lack of comfort. We see in verses 1 through 3 that there's a lack of comfort. The second thing that we see is that there's a lack of contentment, and that's found in verses 4 through 6. And finally, in verses 7 and 8, he shows us that there's a lack of companionship. Three tragedies in life that are common to every one of us. The first thing is a lack of comfort. The second is a lack of contentment. And third that we'll take a look at is a lack of companionship. And as we go through this, he begins to help us to identify what some of these problems are, what some of these tragedies are, and he gives us some answers or solutions to what do you do about it? What do you do about a lack of comfort? So let's take a look at that first. A lack of comfort in Ecclesiastes and it's the first three verses, which you can't see down there. Okay. Ecclesiastes, you ready? It says, And I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that no one, there was no one to comfort them. The first thing he looks at is that, you know, there's a lot of injustice in the world. And he says that he looks at it again. He stops to take a look again at what he's already talked to us about. And he flipped back to the third chapter. Look at verse 16. It says in the third chapter, verse 16, it says, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there's wickedness. And uh, in the place of righteousness there's also wickedness. So he says, you know, I saw that. You know, I see the injustice in the world around us. And we all see that. And it becomes pretty obvious. How many of you have seen things that happened just this past week that are a tragedy of injustice that have taken place? We see it all the time. We see it in business. We see it with the Lincoln Finance, the, the savings and loan. And we see people that have put their life savings into something and see it fall apart. And we think, oh, what an injustice this is. What a tragedy it is. And who's going to comfort them? And we see people crying on the televisions as they explain their story. And they're broken about what's going on. And he says, you know, I stopped and I took a look at that again and I began to realize, you know what, there is a lot of injustice in life. And I thought I'd take another look at it again. And I looked at all the acts of oppression which were being done and I saw the tears of the oppressed. And you know what I saw? I saw no one there to comfort them. I was kind of like, hey, that's the way it is. You know, you kind of, you listen to it and you see it happening and it's kind of the conclusion is, hey, well, that's just the way it is. You know, the acts of injustice. And there's something within each one of us that really bothers us about injustice. Um, I'll give you a couple examples. As you're growing up and you read nursery rhymes, you've probably read Humpty Dumpty, right? Okay, we all know Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and and, uh, Humpty Dumpty, you know, he fell down, he broke up, he fell apart. And all the king's horse and all the king's men, this is my version of it, couldn't couldn't put the guy back together, the egg back together again, whatever Humpty was, okay? Now, we're kind of bummed out about that because that's a tragedy. Poor Humpty Dumpty fell, you know, he fell apart, he couldn't get put back together, and that's the way the nursery rhyme goes. A little depressing, but we're not really, it doesn't bother us too much. It's a tragedy. We can live with it. Now, let me ask you a question. What if you found out somebody pushed Humpty off the wall? Huh? 
Would that bother you? That, see, that would bother me. It's kind of like, hey, wait a minute. You know, it's, oh, it's kind of sad, but somebody, hey, you know what? We don't know. Somebody pushed Humpty off the wall, and they're still looking for who it was. That would bother me. Would that bother you? That would bother me. A certain sense of injustice to that. I hope it would bother you a little bit. Now, how about Robin Hood? Robin Hood... Now, see, I grew up in southwest Pennsylvania. I grew up right outside of Pittsburgh. Robin Hood is kind of like a cult hero to us. You know what I mean? Now, if I grew up like some of you in Newport Beach or Villa Park, I'd probably have a different attitude toward, toward Robin Hood. <laughs> However, that's not where we're from. So Robin Hood was all right. And we all know the story of Robin Hood. Robin Hood stole from the rich and he gave to the poor and he and he took it, you know, he took it from those who were oppressing those who were the you know, took it from the oppressors to give to the oppressed. And I think that was the greatest thing in the world, you know? Now now the closest thing we saw to an import came out of Detroit. You know what I'm saying? So it's kinda like I, I, I like this whole story of Robin Hood. Because Robin Hood was doing something good, right? I mean how many of you like Robin Hood? Think about it. Oh, a lot of people from Villa Park and Newport Beach in here. <laughs> The few people that raise their hands from other parts of the country that live in reality. Um, but anyway, uh, now I'm not sure where this is going to go because you could all turn ugly on me here. So <laughs> now nah, we'll keep running with it. Now, see, I like Robin Hood. Now, but what if you found out Robin Hood was skimming like 30% for himself? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Robin Hood had Swiss bank account. He was skimming off the top, you know. And the only thing he let anybody know and leaked out to the media was that he was given to the poor. But now we find out, an investigative reporter comes onto the scene and finds out Robin Hood, for all these years, has been skimming it off the top. And he's got a place over in Switzerland, a little chalet right there on the slopes, and that's where he hangs out every off-season. Now, I don't know. Now, that would bother me. There's a certain sense of injustice that all of us get upset about. And what Solomon's saying is, hey, you know what? I saw the oppressed, and I saw the injustice of the world, and I saw the hurts of people, and they were not comforted. So as we're going through this, I want you to try to put yourself in that position of seeing the oppressed. And it's not that difficult to do as we look at what's going on in the world around us. As we're reminded as we see what's going on in Romania, and we're reminded as we see what's going on in Germany, and we're reminded as we see what's going on in Panama, on a regular basis we see the, the tears of the oppressed. And who's there to comfort them? And the only reason we see it now is because there's some semblance of comfort and relief that's taking place. But for the years and years and years that have gone by where there was no comfort at all, not even a little faint hope of it, we never got to see the oppression that was going on. And the tragedy that occurred, um, and we begin to read about it and see it, and we start to feel the grave injustice that has taken place. And it should burn at every one of our hearts as we think about what's happening. See, so the problem that Solomon said is, hey, you know what? Are you there? Are you being oppressed? Is there tragedy going on in your life and there's tears in your life and you see no comfort? Turn ahead to the book of Lamentations. A couple books ahead, turn to Lamentations, the first chapter. And this whole thing of lack of comfort is dealt with in Lamentations. Lamentations. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And the book of Lamentations is a title which means to openly cry out loud, to lament, to cry out loud about the injustice or about the persecution or tragedy that's taken place. And in the first chapter, Jeremiah gives us a scene of what's going on. And we see he writes, How lonely sits the city, 
He's talking about the city of Jerusalem and as he prophesies about the impending destruction by the Babylonians that took place in 586, he's saying that, hey, guess what? Tragedy is about to befall the city of Jerusalem and I'm looking at it and seeing it from God's perspective. And you know what I see about tragedy? It says how lonely sits the city that was full of people. And how true that is that as we go through tragedies in our life, it seems like we're all alone in the, in the plight that we're, we have before us. It says that she has become like a widow who, has once, who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess has, among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks, and she has no one to comfort her. How many times have you been put in that situation where you've laid in bed at night and you've openly wept about something that's going on in your life or someone's life around you that you care deeply about? And you just laid there and you cried yourself to sleep, as it were, in the tears of the oppression and the, and the lack of comfort you found in your life. If you've lived on this earth very long, you've seen it's, it's happened and it's been very true. And he's saying that, you know, and that's what they're going through, weeping bitterly in the night and tears around her cheeks and she has no one to comfort her. It says, among all her lovers and all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. Reminded in Malachi when we're talking about divorce and the reason God says he hates divorce is because of the treacherous way in which a husband has dealt with his spouse in breaking a prior commitment. And God's saying that, you know what's so funny is when we go through tragedies, how often it is that our friends desert us. Those who are committed to us, they're going to stand beside us. And the moment that something comes up in our life that's going to require something of that friendship, they disappear and they fade away. They deal treacherously and how it adds to the misery of the tragedy that you're going through. And then it goes on in verse 9. It says, her uncleanness, speaking of Jerusalem, her uncleanness was in her skirts. She did not consider her future. Therefore, she has fallen astonishingly. And there, as a result, she has no comforter. Verse 16, for these things I weep, my eyes run down with water, because far from me is a comforter, one who will restore my soul. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands and there is no one to comfort her. Have you ever been in that position where you're really hurting, where something's going on, and you can just picture the vivid description of somebody who's going through pain in their life. And as they reach out for just somebody to hold them and to hug them and to squeeze them and to tell them it's going to be okay, nobody is there to comfort them. See, that's what he's saying. As Solomon looked about life around us, you know what he saw? He saw people that were broken hearted. And he saw very little, if any, comfort. Regretfully, even Christians who are encouraged to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice and to be available to encourage and comfort one another. It's amazing to me how as soon as there's a price to be paid for that relationship, we walk away from it. And our friend who once was our friend and, they, and their arms are out and they're stretched out saying, please, I need some comfort, I need some help. We turn and we walk away from them and there's no one to comfort them. So what Solomon's saying is, even at best, when we do try to comfort one another, oftentimes we make it even worse. David wrote, he said, you know what? He goes, reproach has broken my heart, Psalm 69, 20. Reproach has bro broken my heart, and I look, I look for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, and you know what? I couldn't find any. As he went through the struggles in his life that he went through, he looked for people to comfort him, and there was no one around. Boy, you know what Solomon has to say is a lot of truth, even in our days, doesn't it? If you've been there, you know what he's talking about. You're looking for comfort and you can't find it in people around you. And in fact, if you've got friends who try to comfort you or what they offer as comfort, a lot of times they even make it worse. Have you ever been there? Job was there. You know what Job found out? It says Job answered. These were his friends that came to him to comfort him for what he was going through. And in Job 16, 1 through 3, it said, Job answered, I've heard many such things. Sorry comforters are you all. Is there no limit to your windy words? Or what plagues you that you answer? 
<laughs> what a great comment. It's like, what disease do you have? You know, what's your problem? In verse, uh, chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, he says, You are worthless physicians. Oh, that you would become completely silent and that it would become your wisdom. Have you been there before? If you've been there, man, you felt it. You feel somebody coming to you and they're trying to offer comfort, but what they're really doing is they're indicting you for what you're going through. See, that's what happened to Job. See, Job's friends came to comfort him and he said, well, you know what? I mean, <laughs> it's obvious that there must be something in your life. There must be some sin. There must be something that you've caused to make these things happen to you because God just wouldn't allow you to go through this for no reason at all. So you must be at fault. You must be to blame. And it's amazing to me how often it is we find that somebody who's going through some tragedy in their life, well, they must have done something. They must have did something to deserve it. And when we have that attitude, guess what? Let me just share a little secret with you. You are not going to be able to offer a whole lot of comfort to somebody who's going through a tragedy when the first thing you're thinking is they must be guilty of something. Isn't that sad? And Job said, man, what plagues you? What disease you got? What's your problem? You are worthless physicians. You know what? It'd be better if you didn't say anything. Don't say anything and, and uh, acquire wisdom through that process. Sometimes when you don't know what to say to somebody, sometimes you don't know what they're going through, the best thing you can do is not say a word, but just be available. Just say, you know what? I don't have a clue what you're going through. But I just want to let you know I care about you, I love you, and I'm available if you want to talk about it. Because words are, are worthless at times. And in fact, if anything, they cause additional discomfort. Man, if we could just acquire some wisdom like that. Stop and think about what you wanted to say and then don't say it. You know what's interesting? You know what a lot of our... And here's, and here's our answer. You know what? I go back to Ecclesiastes 4. But you see the answer to what we think? If we are oppressed and we have no comfort, you know what usually our answer to the problem is? What is it? Become the oppressor. You ever been there? You are being oppressed. You got a tough boss. The only answer to the oppression that you're going through is someday become your own boss. Isn't that the way it works? Here's a problem. It's like Francis Schaeffer writes about it. And he says this. A lot of times our problem is we think the comfort in life will be found by being put in the position of those who are adding discomfort to our life. For example, many of you right now are not feeling a lot comfortable because of the way that I speak or what I say. So the answer to that would be to come here and take my place. Amen? And that's how I got started, by the way. But so, but see, it's always that way, isn't it? It's like, okay, well, you know what? It's no fun being oppressed. It must be a lot of fun doing the oppressing. Right? That's logical, right? Francis Schaeffer, he wrote this, and he was commenting at the time on Mark chapter 10, where Jesus was talking about if you want to be great in God's kingdom, then you need to be servant of all. And that there is no comfort, there is no uh, comfort that's found in power. Anyway, he writes this. He says, people in the world naturally want to boss others. Imagine a boy beginning with a firm. He's ordered around by everybody. Do this, do that. He's the last man on the totem pole. One day when the boss is out, he goes into the boss's office, sits down behind his desk, and says out loud, One day, I'll be in this position, and when I say do this, they'll do it. And when I say run, they'll run. He says, This is man. And let us say with tears that a person does not automatically abandon this mentality when he becomes a Christian. There remains a seed in us that wants to be boss, a word of power in us that will keep us above all the others. You know what Solomon has to say about that? 
And what Schaefer was saying, too, is he commented the same thing our Lord said in Mark 10, is that, you know what? There is no comfort in power. Look at Ecclesiastes 4. Look at verse 1 again. Don't blow by this because this is something that we need to see. The fact is, according to the Bible, that some of the most lonely, miserable people who have no comfort at all in their life are the people that we envy the most. Are the top dogs, the big cheese, the guy at the top of the ladder, the one that sits in the boss's office. And you know what he's saying? Even if you reach that office and if you believe that you'll have comfort once you get there, there's no comfort for you. There's no comfort to be found in power. And he says in verse 1, he says, you know what? And I saw on the side of their oppressors, they had power, but they had no one to comfort them. They had no one to comfort them. Do you see the way it works? We sit and we envy the one who's in the office making the decisions. We sit and envy the dictator who is, uh, who is oppressing the people and saying, if we could just get rid of him and if we could take his place, then we'll have comfort. We'll have comfort in that power and no one can oppress us again. So we look for comfort in that way and we get there. And you know what we find out? There's no comfort for us either. There's no one there to comfort us. The loneliest people that you'll ever meet are the people that are on the top of their ladder. They have no one to share with. They have no one to talk to. They have no one to comfort them. And you know what's amazing is when they started out on that struggle to climb the ladder, they thought the whole time once they got there, there'd be a sense of comfort when they were there. Solomon says, hey, well, guess what? That's not true. Why isn't it true? Very simple, because God hates oppression. God hates people who manipulate their power for their own benefits. Listen to the words of Proverbs 14.31. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy, he honors him. Proverbs 17.5, He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. And we see it happening all around us, don't we? Those who mock at the poor take advantage of the poor. Proverbs 22.16, He who oppresses the poor to make himself rich or who gives to the rich only will come to poverty. Isn't that a vivid reminder of what we see happening around us? People who have oppressed people for years, thought they were getting away with it, but payday someday. And we see it happen. And it's really hard to feel sorry about you know, military courts that take place in places like Romania. It's hard to even have a, an ounce of sympathy for people as you see the oppression that has taken place. And as you find the tragedy that has gone on behind the scene. There aren't a lot of people saying, oh, gee, that's too bad that happened in Romania. In fact, I, I, the, the, the one line I heard that stuck in my head was that you know, when uh, Noriega didn't want to leave Panama, it was said that, well, if he doesn't want to come to the United States, maybe he'll agree to go to Romania and let them try him. Um, you know, and, and it's, hard to, it's hard to feel sorry for the, a guy that oppresses people. But you know what? God doesn't. God hates those who are in power that oppress the poor. God has always stood up for the poor and the oppressed. So the question as we go through this is, you know what? Where is there any comfort to be found? And as Solomon sees all that there's no comfort for the oppressed or the oppressor, guess what he proposes? Look at verses 2 and 3. Hey, there's no comfort in this life for those on top. There's no comfort in those in life who are being taken, of, taken uh, advantage of on the bottom. So guess my conclusion is, it's, I congratulate the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. Hey, at least they're not going to go through it anymore. You can only get oppressed one time until you're dead, and when you're dead, you're dead. So, hey, you know what? I say congratulations to them. I said, but you know what's even better off? It's even better off than both of them as one's never existed. Never had to go through the tragedies of this life. Never had to see the evil activities that are found under the sun. Never had to live their life to see the tragedy that goes on, thinking that somehow or another, and the sad fact is a lot of us believe that the tragedies that we see around us and the hurts that we go through, that somehow we've come to the conclusion somewhere along the line that this must be hell. 
And the sad point is, that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches exactly the opposite. If you think this is hell, this is the closest place to heaven you'll ever be. See, so what we need to do is take a look at what God has to say is, where is there comfort to be found? Well, it's obvious there is no comfort to be found on this earth as we see it around us. As we see people take advantage of one another, there's no comfort here. So that was his conclusion as he takes a look at that. And then it leads us to the second problem. And the second problem is, not only is there a lack of comfort, but there's also a lack of contentment. There's a certain sense of restlessness that's in the souls of every one of us. Something that tells us that there's got to be more to life, something that there's got to be more to achieve, more to accomplish, more to do. And he said, and I've seen that every labor, and this is four through six, I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry. It's a result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One handful of rest is better than two fistful of labor and striving after the wind said not only did he observe that there was no comfort in this life, he also observed, you know what? There's no contentment either. Everybody's running around trying to accomplish more, trying to do more. Do you ever wonder what the source of that restlessness is? You know what he said it was? Look at this. You know what I've seen? Every labor, every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. It's a result of envy. Do you want to know what will make you more restless than anything that you could ever imagine in your life? It's to begin to envy what you see in other people. See, it's kind of like it's the, it's the law of the jungle. It's the rat race. It's the things that keep going. How many of you have been content with your life until you saw something somebody else has? See what Solomon's saying? How many of you have had that happen in your life? You know what? Man, I'm, I'm content with my life. And then I see Joe Blow has a new whatever. And I kind of go, ooh, you know what? I think we should have a new whatever. Or I see him get a promotion and I say, you know what, man, you know what, I've got to work harder at my job so that I can get the promotion that he has because he's not half as smart as I am and I don't understand how he got it. See, that's the way it is. And so what happens is it encourages me to continue to struggle on, to continue to fight harder. Why? So I can have more, so I can have better, so I can have that promotion. Why do I want it? Well, the only reason I want it is because I saw what somebody else has and that's what's motivated me to get it. You follow what I'm saying? Does it make any sense to you? Because Solomon's saying this. You know what motivates every one of us in our own spirits? It's because we see that somebody else has something we don't have and we want the same thing. Would you want it necessarily on your own? Probably not. But once you see somebody else has it, then you want it. So that's what spurs on this competition that we have that goes on between one another. And you can fill in the blank of anything you want. What have you seen lately that has brought discontent in your life? Remember the uh, parable of the day laborer Jesus in uh, Matthew 20 told a story about the guys that worked all day long. Some worked 6, 9, 12, whatever. And there were different hours throughout the day. And they all came to be paid and they all were paid exactly the same. And they were all upset about it because one worked 12 hours, one worked 9, one worked 6. I mean, it went throughout the day. And they were all upset because they all got paid the same. And you remember what the, what the, the, the landowner said? Is it because your eye is envious that I am generous to others? See, Proverbs tells us that envy is rottenness to the bones. Let me just share this truth with you that Solomon shares with us. Do you know what will destroy your life quicker than anything you can think of? And that is to begin comparing yourself to other people. When you start comparing yourself to other people, you'll have the root of bitterness that will spring up in your life and it will destroy your life. Comparison sows the seeds of discontent in every one of us. When you begin to compare what you have or don't have versus what other people have, it will destroy you quicker than anything else. And you know what Solomon saw about it? You know what the, the bottom line is for all of us who are motivated because we're trying to keep up with one another? 
Bottom line is, hey, this is vanity and striving after the wind. You'll get to the end of it and you'll say, what in the world did I do that for? Why did I go through everything that I went through? Why did I do all the things that I did just so I could keep up with what you have and what you have and the job that you have and where you live and the car you drive? Why did I do all of that? You know what I said? Hey, it's vanity. Striving after the wind. When you get it, it's going to be empty. And you're going to look back on your life and you're going to say, man, you know what? I missed a lot because of it. So the answer is, I guess, that we need to wrestle with is, you know, what's the answer? What's the answer to the rat race in which we live? See, that's what we're all wrestling with, right? Every one of us are living in this rat race. Every one of us have to deal with competition. I don't care whatever industry you're in, whatever level of, uh, of work that you're involved in. All of us are dealing with competition. So what's the answer to all of it? There's two solutions, right? The first solution that we see is uh, Solomon tells us, he says, you know what? So you know what I decide? Verse 5. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. The first solution is the one that everyone who's moving to Oregon has decided to do. Just kidding. And that is, hey, you know what? I'm dropping out. I'm dropping out of the rat race. I'm tired of it. I don't want to deal with it anymore. I don't like the competition. I don't like people stabbing each other in the back. I don't like any of this stuff. I'm dropping out. I'm folding my hands. I'm cashing them in. Whatever you want to call it. I'm I'm cashing out. I'm moving away. I don't want to deal with it anymore. That's it. I'm tired. Have you been there? Have you felt that way? See, many of us wrestle with that. It's like, hey, how do you handle the competition? How do you handle the, the law of the jungle, the rat race? Well, the first temptation is just drop out. Just drop out. You know what I mean? But you know, the problem is God has much to say about work, and He doesn't want us to just drop out. In fact, He has a lot to say about people who drop out. Look what He says, Proverbs 6, 9 11. How long will you lie down, you sluggard? You little slime in the mud, you. I mean, I like that. It kind of catches your attention right away. I don't really like it, but what he's saying is, you know what? Whenever you have that tendency to want to just lie down, cash them in, fold in, fold up the tent, go somewhere else to stop struggling with the the law of the jungle, you know what he says? Hey, hey, slug. Uh, Whatever catches your attention. Now, I know that you may be insulted by that. Uh, Oh, slug. He says, "When when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And you know what's going to happen to you? Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. See, God is opposed to laziness, to apathy. He says, man, you know what? When we decide to fold it in and cash in and just, you know, that's it, drop out. He said, hey, wait, slug. You can't do that. He says, you know what will happen to you? I passed by the field of the sluggard and the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And you know what he found out? That it was all overgrown with thorns and thistles and that there were weeds all over the place. And once we drop out of the rat race, once we become lazy, we fold our hands, then we've got more problems to deal with. Did you ever have that happen in your yard? How many of you have like a slope that maybe once every six months you decide to weed or whatever? If you've done that, you know what that's all about. Because what God says, hey, you know what happens? It's going oh, to just keep on happening. It's going to all grow in. And then you're going to have to take more time to try to get rid of those weeds that if you were doing it on on an ongoing basis, you wouldn't have to deal with. So it's like, hey, all this time that you're lazy, it's going to catch up with you. Somewhere along the line, it's going to catch up with you and you're going to pay the price. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond. You know what? I guess what God's trying to warn us is the answer to the rat race and competition isn't dropping out. It isn't folding our hands and and going away. There's another answer, though. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. You see what he says? See, it's not the apathy of the fool, the one who says he's going to drop out, but it's the attitude of the wise person. 
that realizes that there's a balance to life. That realizes that, you know what, there's a balance and we don't have to experience the turmoil of an overachiever. The overachiever that's never satisfied with anything, never content with where they're at in life, never content with what they've already accomplished. There's always something more. There's always something bigger. There's always something better. There's always another promotion. There's always another office to, to try to attain. There's always more, 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 more. And you know what God says about it? Boy, you know what? One handful of rest is better than two fistful of labor and striving after the wind. These are comparative proverbs, but the point that he's trying to make is that it's better... Proverbs 15, 16, and 17 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is. Just shows you what God thinks of veggies, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation where you go, Man, you know what? I'd rather just eat vegetables by myself. Or somebody who likes being with me where there's no turmoil, there's no anxiety. It reminds me of like Thanksgiving and Christmas. Isn't that the truth? It's kind of like, I'd rather just have a little plate of vegetables where there's no tension and friction going on than I would with the greatest of all the buffets and feasts that this world has to offer. When you're sitting down with nothing but friction in family situations and friends and everything else that's going on, man, I'd rather just have vegetables. That's saying a lot. Better is a little with righteousness, Proverbs 8, 16, 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. See, this is God's perspective. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Paul says, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. You know what he's saying about contentment? He's saying it's something that you have to learn. And you know the way you learn it? Usually the way you learn it is run around with two fistful and you're trying to accomplish and achieve and you continually go after it and there's nothing satisfying you and you find no comfort in any of it and then you just keep on doing it and you don't even know why you're doing it. And he's saying, hey, why don't you stop for a moment? You and I don't have to be trapped by that. You and I don't have to be trapped by this philosophy. And listen to me. Listen to me because here's what's going on all around us. You know what the philosophy is? If you don't want more and you don't want bigger and you don't want better and you don't want a promotion and you are satisfied with where you're at, you're a loser. You're a loser. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth where you're at? Because if you don't take that transfer and you don't move the first time it's offered, they may offer it to you one more time, but after all, then they label you. You're not, you're not a company person. You're not going to move. So the next position that comes up, you're not offered it. So you're tempted to think, well, man, you know what? Well, I, I better go for the move. I don't want to be passed up in the promotion. I don't want to be passed up in the transfer, in the position, in the, in the benefits, and the wages that go along with it. So if, I'm not, if I show that I'm content in my life, then I'm a loser. But that's not what God says. God says we don't have to be overachievers to the point where there's discontent in our life. And you know where the danger is? The danger is when we get to that point. God may have something for you to accomplish in your life. And He may be motivating you for, to, for you to do that. But what we need to wrestle with is what is our motivation behind what we're doing? What's pushing us on and upward? Pushing us to where we want to accomplish more? Is it more money? Is it more things? Is it more power? Is it because we think if we get power, then we can oppress those who have been oppressing us? See, this is the warning all throughout this is, hey, guess what? If you're doing those things for those reasons, God says it's the wrong reason. If you're doing what you're doing because you envy what somebody else has, and if you hadn't seen it, you didn't even feel it, and there was no real inner desire or urge to go on and accomplish that, then he's saying that you better take a good hard look at why you're doing what you're doing. There's a danger that's wrapped up in all of this, and we need to be aware of it, particularly in the area and the culture in which we live in that says, if you're content with where you're at, you're a loser. 
God says, hey, listen to me. No, I've learned to be content, is what Paul said, in all circumstances. I've learned what it means to have one hand full and to have peace of mind and satisfaction and contentment in my life. I realize what it means to be going after it all the time and finding out that's not the answer to life. So he says, you know what the, the third problem was? And usually these problems lead to one another, don't they? Have you ever seen a person who is never content with anything? The overachiever that's never satisfied with where they're at in life? Have you ever been around a person like that? Let me ask you a question. Do you like being around a person like that? Most of us don't. And you know what happens? That person ends up in a situation where there is no companionship. There is no companionship. Do you know why? Because he's driven everybody away. She's driven everybody away. They're never satisfied. They're never content. They're always looking for more. They use people all around them so that they can achieve whatever their goals are. They, they, they stab as many people as they can. And you know what they find out when they get in the position that Schaefer talked about, the office that they were always looking for? They sit in it alone and they have no companionship in their life. I see it happen with men all the time in their families. You know what ends up happening is this. you got a guy who's always looking for the promotion. He's looking for the more, the more bucks. He's working 12 hours a day, 6 and 7 days a week. He's always looking for more, 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 more. And you know what happens at the end of all of it? And why is he doing it? Oh, I'm doing it for you, honey. I'm doing it for the kids. I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it so we can have things that were better than I ever had when I was a kid. I'm doing it for all of you. And they're all sitting there saying, we don't even know you. And the guy we know now, we don't even like. But I'm doing it for you, babe. And you know what happens? They end up alone. They end up to the end of all of that, this whole path that they've taken. They've ended up to the end of it. They've climbed the ladder. They have the cars. They have the money. They have the second, third houses, the boats, and all the rest that goes along with it. And they don't have anybody who will even spend any time with them. In any of them. Solomon says, you know what? What a tragic waste of time. What a tragedy that we see in the world around us. And we're all caught up in it, man. I mean, we're just getting caught up in it like a whirlpool going down the drain. And we can't even catch ourselves in time. We're looking for comfort and there isn't any. We're looking for contentment. We don't have any because we're told that there's always more to life that's going to that's gonna bring that satisfaction. And then we end up with no, no companionship. And we read, Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. And in verse 8, There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. This guy had no one he's even working for because probably the ones he's working for left him already. And he continued to do it. And you know what? He said, indeed, his eyes were not satisfied. You see how that is? It's envy of the eye. He looks around and he's not satisfied. He compares himself and he wants more. And he says, and I looked at that and I'm not satisfied anymore with anything. And I continue to work harder for more and better and bigger. And he said, you know what? And I stopped and he said, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity and striving after the wind. It's a grievous task. And it says that he's pretty much separated himself, and God warns against that. He who separates himself, Proverbs 18.1, seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound judgment. And that's the truth. You know what he's saying? A guy that says, hey, but I've been doing this all for you, really is saying, I've been doing this all for you because I think I can get away with that excuse, but really the reason I'm doing it is because I'm doing it for me. I like the challenge. I like the, I like the authority. I like the power. I like people worshiping me everywhere that I go. I like all that, and that's why I'm doing it. And he's saying, hey, you know what? You separate yourself, you're a fool in God's eyes. And many of us have found ourselves at that position in life. You know, and, and as you think about that, there's no comfort on this earth, there's no contentment on this earth, and there's no companionship that stands up on this earth. And the problem is, as you go through it, you've got to ask yourself, hey, you know what? What's the answer to all the tragedies of life? 
they continue to go on, they go on, and they go on. And you've got to ask yourself, where am I going to find some comfort? How can I find contentment? And where am I going to find companionship that isn't going to fail me when I have a need in my life? That's really what we've got to ask ourselves. That's what Solomon was dealing with right here. And you know what the Bible teaches? There's only one place that we can go. There's only one place we can go that will answer the need for comfort, for contentment, and for companionship. And you know where that is? Right here. You want to find comfort? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and, God, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 3, actually 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. That's the comfort. The place of all comfort is found in Jesus Christ. There is no comfort outside of that relationship. It says in Revelation 21.4, He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. See, God Himself is the source of comfort. And we find that in Jesus Christ. He's the only one that will give you comfort that will be lasting comfort. We may get temporary comfort and strokes from another here on earth, but it doesn't last, it doesn't endure, because another tragedy comes up and we don't find any comfort in it. You know, it's amazing to me how often when people are going through a tragedy, we, we try to, to comfort them with, with cheap words that are useless. And the last place that we go is, hey, you want some comfort? You know what the Bible says? Hey, comfort, comfort one another with these words. Because God's promises are true. What God has to say will come to pass. When somebody dies, you want to comfort somebody? He says in 1 Thessalonians, about death, I don't, want you to be, uh, I don't want you to be unaware or not knowing what's going on. Comfort one another with these words. John 14, we see the same thing, you know, where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto me, but through, but, no man comes unto the Father, but through me. And he goes on to tell us that he goes to prepare a place for us. And if it wasn't so, he told us, but he does, and he's going to do it. And if he says he's coming back, he will. And if it says that he'll wipe away every tear, there's going to be a day where there'll never be another tragedy in your life if you just believe him and trust him. That's the only place that you and I will ever find any lasting comfort in this life. We will not find comfort that lasts in one another. We will not find contentment anywhere outside of the Lord either. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'll be, I'll be content, I'll be satisfied. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He brings peace and, and harmony and contentment into my life. When my relationship is right with the Lord, man, I've got peace in my life like no peace this world has to offer. You know what's amazing and sad to me is that we've got a world around us who are always looking for something that, to uh, bring contentment in their life. They can't find it through things. And then they turn their life to Christ and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you in this. They become believers because they, they trust in Christ. And then they fall right back into the same trap that they were in before and they have no relationship outside of the Lord. Every now and then they stop in on a Sunday or you come by and you, look, you open your Bible and you have no relationship at all. And all of a sudden, guess what? You get caught up in the rat race and you get sucked right back into the mainstream again. Your, your destiny is secure, but your life here on earth, there's no contentment anymore because you want to try to do all the things that you're doing before. You know what's amazing is? When you have a right relationship with the Lord, when you're spending time with Him, when you see what He wants you to do, when He sees the desires for your life, when you see what He has to say about contentment and satisfaction and peace, when you see what He says about balance in life, when He says, hey, don't keep striving for more, more, more. Where's that going to head you? It's a, it's a dead-end street. Hey, be content. Learn contentment in every circumstance. You know what you find out? There'll be no more discontent in your life. 
He says, oh, and my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and, and glory in Christ. Every one of the needs that you and I have will be found in Christ. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints. For those who fear Him, there is no want. Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you want to become wise on what will bring contentment in your life, then you need to fear Him. You need to fear God and live for Him. To see what He has to say about all these things that we're talking about. And realize, you know what? Man, everybody's longing for some peace in their life. And it's found in a right relationship with the living God. And the last thing, companionship. A man of many friends comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The Bible says, Proverbs 18.24, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born of adversity. Through all the tragedies in your life, when every other friend that you have on this earth bails out on you, they leave, they accuse you, you're to blame for what's going on. When everybody else turns away from you or their words of comfort add affliction to your tragedy, you know one place you can turn is the God who loves you. And you know what you'll find there? Every time He's always there. He's always available. Every tragedy that comes up, He wants to give peace and hope in your situation. Every event under the sun, we've already seen Solomon said, happens for God's purposes, happens in God's timing, and happens for His glory. And if you believe that, everything that happens, there is no more tragedies in life. There isn't a tragedy. Because everything that happens, every event that takes place, is because God has ordained it to happen for His purposes to bring Himself glory. There's no tragedy in life. Everything that I read at the beginning that we look at as a tragedy isn't a tragedy in God's perspective and in His timing and in His viewpoint. They happen for a reason so that we would all turn to the living God who loves us. Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. The greatest act of love that's ever been demonstrated to you and I by our friend was the moment that Jesus Christ took your sins and bore them on the cross. When He died for you, he said, in essence, I love you to this extent. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Like the song says, what a friend we have in Jesus. Men and women, it can't get any simpler than this. If you want comfort in your life, if you want to find contentment in your life, and if you want enduring companionship in your life, there's only one person you can turn to, and that's the living God who loves you. Do you have a right relationship with Him? Have you trusted Him? And if you have, and you're going through all this turmoil, it's time that you turn back to Him and trust Him at what He says. He can, pro- he can provide everything and supply all your needs in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You for this opportunity just to see the truth of uh, a perspective under the sun. As Solomon looks out in life and sees that there's just no comfort, there's no contentment, there's no companionship that lasts, once again forces us to look above. Life under the sun, life here on the earth is tragic indeed. But there is hope, and there is purpose, and there is direction. But we've got to take our eyes off of one another and off of this earth, and we've got to look above the clouds, and we've got to see who you are. We've got to look up. We've got to look up at the cross. We've got to look at what Jesus did and accomplished for us by taking our sins and dying for us. By raising from the dead to prove that He is worthy to be trusted and that He's, that he's also capable of giving us comfort, of bringing contentment and peace into our life as we walk rightly with Him. And God is a companion who will never leave us or forsake us throughout all the so-called tragedies of this life. Those tragedies point to the reality of your word and that you are always there, that you're always available for us, and that you're always willing to give comfort 
in times of our affliction. And God, we just thank You for that. And we just praise You that there's hope in a world that has none. And we just ask You can use our lives to draw others to Your Son. And we just thank You now in Jesus' name. Amen.